everything about that night was just completely weird. Um, I headbutted him and we wrestled across the table right there in front of me. We went into the booth on the other side and knocked all my gear over. And I fought with him, you know, probably a, a minute, maybe. And he stabbed me in the side, uh, punctured my lung and my liver, and I thought I was going to die. Welcome to the School of Laughs podcast, brought to you by SchoolofLaughs.com. Whether you're an aspiring comedian, a part-time pro, or a speaker who wants to become funnier, this is the podcast for you. We'll break down tools, tips, and techniques to help you get bigger, better, and more bookable. And now, here's the show. Welcome to the School of Laughs podcast. This is Rick Roberts. And as you heard in the introduction there, we've got a very special show for you today. My buddy Bill Foley, who I met back in 1992, I believe it was, uh, was injured earlier this year in an attack right before he was getting ready to perform some acoustic guitar at a gig he'd done for seven years, every Thursday night for seven years. And he was attacked, him and some other people there in the restaurant. He's on the mend now, uh, facing about $250,000 worth of medical bills, um, just 400 stitches. You'll hear him talk about it in the interview. But a very great guy, and I, I couldn't be uh, more happy that he is still with us, and I'm just astounded by the fact that he is. Uh, we talk about a lot of things in the first part of the interview, you know, where he came from musically and uh, how he kind of progressed as a solo performer. And we talk about the attack, you know, towards the end. But I wanted you guys to kind of listen in and get to know a friend of mine, Bill Foley, who, lucky for me, I get to know a little longer and uh, hopefully a lot longer. So very interesting podcast today. Hope you uh, get a lot out of it and uh, at least send Bill a message of encouragement after you listen to it and let him know you're pulling for him. Before we get into that interview, here's a question from the email box. This comes from Robert Talbot. Robert says, I have a few questions for you. First, what is the most favorite comedy bit that you've written? Two, what is your favorite bit that someone else has performed or written? And three, what is the funniest bit that you've ever seen or what has made you laugh the hardest? So three great questions there, Robert. Let me tackle number one first, the most favorite comedy bit that I have written. There's a couple that I like, but man, if I had to say a favorite, it's probably my bread and butter uh, Barney Fife routine where uh, I get into a situation where I'm driving across Kansas and uh, have a little interaction with the popo out there. And I like it because it's evolved over the years. It can be a seven-minute piece, and the uh, the tightest I can get it, if I'm really just kind of bare-knuckling the whole thing, is about three and a half minutes. But it's a, a bit that I like because it kind of ties everything together for my entire show. I have a lot of callbacks in there, and it gives, gives me the opportunity to do my impression of Barney Fife, which is really just two sentences, probably of the whole seven minutes. But people remember that a lot. And I'll link to that in the show notes for you guys if you want to check out that bit if you haven't seen it before. Uh, second question, what is your favorite bit that someone else has performed or written? You know, man, my favorite piece ever, and it may not be considered stand-up, uh, but Steve Martin, when he did King Tut on Saturday Night Live. I must have been in junior high. I'd have to look it up. Probably junior high when I saw that. And a light bulb went on in the back of my head, and I, I just thought that was so funny. And it was, it was really simple, but him in the entire outfit dancing around, uh, that crushed me. And every time I still see it, I think, man, you got to be totally committed one way or the other to do that bit. So that's probably my favorite uh, as far as somebody that's written and performed a bit, King Tut by Steve Martin. I'll link to that in the show notes as well, too. And then the funniest bit that I've ever seen or made me laugh the hardest Okay, I'm going to step out of stand-up for this and just tell you the funniest thing and the hardest I've ever laughed, and it's recent. I don't know how many of you folks out there have seen the Scott Sterling video, the soccer video, where the goalie for this team uh, is Scott Sterling, and he, he basically stops an entire other team from winning by using his face. And I'm going to link to that in the show notes. I'll also link to Scott Sterling Volleyball, if you haven't seen that one yet. But just watch it. If you don't laugh hard at that, maybe this podcast isn't for you because we have nothing in common. It is the funniest thing I've ever seen, and it's just a riot. 
Thanks, Robert, for that great question. That was fun just thinking about those three things. I'm in a better mood already. I'm going to link to those different bits in the show notes so you guys can check it out as well. All right, let's get into the interview with my good buddy, Bill Foley. Well, I'm here with Bill Foley, a guy who I call my friend, a man who I met a long time ago when I first started doing comedy at the Continent in Columbus, Ohio, where the Funny Bone used to be. And we'll get up to that part of the story in a little bit. But I want to go back, Bill, and find out about your early days as a musician. Was a was the guitar something you played early on? I heard somebody say you used to play drums. Yeah, I played I played drums in the house and drove my parents crazy doing that. And and yeah. I just we did a high school play. Uh huh. And it was called The Death and Life of Sneaky Fitch. <laughs> I like it already. And it was exit comedy. And one of the parts in the play required somebody to play acoustic guitar. Ah. And I, I didn't have one, but the director said, Bill, you could do that, couldn't you? And I said, sure, I could do that. So I was the narrator of the play. And I played the acoustic guitar, and I never looked back. I just It just became a love. That's incredible. So isn't it amazing how somebody asks you to do something you haven't done before? Exactly. The door opens, and then the door never closes. Yep. And I, I bet your parents are pretty happy you weren't hanging on the drums anymore. <laughs> my dad especially. Yeah, I could imagine. My dad would not have put up with a drummer in the house. He, he barely put up with my older brother doing the trombone. Right. Uh, and me doing the trumpet. That's awesome. So, uh, But you did play – you know, the fact that you played drums a little bit doesn't surprise me because – I think your your guitar playing, your acoustic guitar playing is very rhythmic. Like there's a yeah. Sometimes it is. It's, it's, I try to emulate all the all the parts of the song as I'm playing it because I think back to the first time I heard the record, and I make jokes about that in my act. You know, it I was a record. What's record? What's that? What's the record? You back know? when they had 78s. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and I just I think back to putting the needle on the record and listening to old Johnny Cash songs with that rhythmic sound to it and sam cook and buddy holly and and i didn't have a drum to make that sound so i kind of made it in my own mind and created the song with a different feel with the rhythmic feel and the acoustic feel all together yeah it's totally noticeable when you play Mm, yeah i think johnny cash used to slide a sheet of paper in between the strings sometimes and do the Mm -hmm. we did that sun studio tour and saw that when they talked about yeah isn't that cool amazing it's little things like that i mean that's not a major innovation or anything but just who who would have thought to do that Mm -hmm. but it really makes that like the brush on the snare kind of sound when i when i toured with carl bunch he was buddy holly's drummer on the winter dance party tour i toured with them and leslie gore years ago and they were talking about that and how buddy holly would put a microphone in front of the electric guitar as well as the amp and i said well why would he do that? He said, because Buddy wanted him to hear the pick hitting the strings. And I thought, man. is that interesting? And he was 20 years old, you know, thinking about that in the studio. to Or anybody else would be trying to get that sound out of there. Exactly. You know, but I always like those, like, traveling noises, they call it, when you go mm-hmm. into, and your fingers go up and down the strings. Exactly. Exactly. Um, that's pretty cool. So you were into a lot of music early. Did you, like... You know, most people don't know what they're going to do for a living at a young age, but was there any kind of thing on your radar, even when you were just playing the drums, that, hey, this is something I might I'm make a run a at? I'm a big old ham, Rick. Yeah. I like to be in front of people any kind of way. And I, I studied theater under Phil Wilson at, at Fort Hayes Career Center, so I was thinking maybe I could do acting. And then I went to Nashville, tried the songwriting thing, maybe I can do songwriting. And I was playing drums and singing backup vocals for people and writing stuff and playing acoustically almost every night as a single and then i got the band together so it's a jack of all trades and master of none well that's, that's, <laughs> that's how i feel too like you know i do this that and the other thing but what's what's my main thing it, it all you know me it all comes from humor <laughs> you it all comes from, from music mm-hmm. and a lot of different places you can take it did you have a little a band in high school did you get i didn't a band have together? a band in high school because everybody was so into like aerosmith and 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 I love that stuff. And your high school years were. I, I graduated in '79. Okay. So I was I uh, I loved all the stuff that was on the radio, but I couldn't sing it. And I could I could do the acoustic artists like James Taylor and Harry Chapin and Jim Croce and all that stuff. And that was I kind of emulated that stuff because everybody else was listening to the hard rockers, mm-hmm. and I loved it. I love Ozzy and I love all that stuff, and it's been a, a big influence. And I love that stuff. But I was more, there was something about the acoustic that just 
kind of filled in the gaps of the 50s and the 60s and 70s, and then it, I kind of carried it on. So I was born too late. Definitely. Yeah, I was going to say, because it's not exactly the, the music of your generation. Right. It was the previous generation. Mm-hmm. Uh, my mom had a, a ton of the Everly Brothers 45s and stuff, and Me I got too. hooked on that stuff early. Like, yeah. Uh, you know, Bye Bye Love. Like, when you hear that, it's like, it's like the perfect song. It is. Mm-hmm. It's like, how did they, and they stripped it down to, you know, I always, always come back to this, like uh, an artist isn't somebody that's giving you everything they got. They're removing everything they don't need to show mm-hmm. you just what it is. Yep. Make it raw. Yeah. That's what I love about it. And that's what you do as an acoustic player. You know, you're playing some of the other parts sort of through your strumming and yeah, things. Yeah, the rhythm and the stuff like, yeah. But you're, you're, well, you're everything. You got, <laughs> but, you're, but there's no, no extra. Like, it's like a, you know, your personality is the extra on top oh, of it. Oh, thanks, Rick. Thank you, man. But there's like, you know, you're getting it down to the bare essence of what it is. Mm-hmm. That's the way I feel every time I hear those songs. Because a a lot of the comedians that I know, like Mark Cordes and Mm -hmm. uh, John Joseph, he's like, don't you just get bored with this? Never. It just never gets boring. Because I I remember being a kid and thinking, God, I just love all these songs and how they made me feel the first time I heard them. And and that's how Mark Cordes, Uh my friend, comedian, he's a brilliant comic, lives out in Scottsdale. Um, He has the hats that he sells with the Betty Ford clinic on the front. Yes, that's right. And the back says outpatient. Right. Which is just hilarious. Right. And him and I were just chit-chatting one night, and he said, Bill, you you got a catchphrase, you know, like Larry the Cable Guy does, you know, get her done. And I kept thinking, what's my catchphrase? And Mark kind of came up with it, and he said, you know how everybody always says, oh, my God, I love that song. Uh-huh. And it's that's so, kind of that been your thing ever catchphrase. since. So we built my wife built the website. It's just been gangbusters, and we and everybody does the the, the texting of each other. O m g i l t s omgilts dot com. Oh my god, I love right. that song, and it's huge. It is. I remember so, even even at the Funny Bone back in the Continent days. You know, there was a couple couple of songs like it was all mandatory. The crowd would yell that oh, out yeah. at you. Yeah, like Brown Eyed Girl and a couple. There were some of those <laughs> American Pie, American yeah. Pie, where it's just yeah. like we got to say that, and it's like, and the crowd gets a big old charge out of it too. <laughs> they do, and I do too. And how can you not? You well, know? it's cool because it's like your individual fans become part of a group mm-hmm. when they realize that other people are doing that too. Because right, you know, not everybody sees you every time you go out. So sometimes they cross pollinate and they they go from you know <laughs> huge, one place to another. It's pretty funny, and then they stand there and talk to each other, and you just kind of stand there and nod your head as they're talking about you. It's that's but pretty cool, that. though. I love it. It's like, think about the the people who have friendships because they come to see your shows. Exactly. And they've met somebody and sat next to them for hours on end. It's amazing. It I, really is amazing. I remember back in the, the continent days where, that sounds weird, like, in, we're in continent now. <laughs> <laughs> back when we were continent. Uh, <clears> when the Funny Bone was at that place, the, the patio on the back was, like, probably the most magical place. It was. To hear it and was. play. And you were gracious enough to get up... Uh, different waiters and waitresses and the bouncers and bartenders mm-hmm. to sing their favorite songs. And, uh, I met so many of my heroes. I mean, I, I met Sam Kennison and I, uh, just all the Brian Regan and all these guys that were just coming through and they're just, they're sitting there having a beer and just relaxing. And, yeah. It's, it was amazing. Kathleen Madigan and, and just, uh, you know, Ron White, the list goes on and on and on. And I'm sitting there in their presence and they're just sitting there clapping along, singing like everybody else. It's just, it, it really was magical. Yeah, I remember those nights. I, you know, Sunday nights. Was it Sunday nights? Yeah, last, Sunday nights. So the last night of the week, all the comics, you know, they finally can relax. They mm-hmm. just plowed through eight shows at the Funny Bone. Yeah. You know, that three show Saturday was hard to come back for. On some, but you, but nobody like drove home. They would hang out all Sunday on that mm-hmm. patio. Yeah, they'd hang out. Summers on that patio. Even the, there was like an apartment complex that, paralleled it yeah and people would hang over the balconies and just watch you singing yeah it was and the people that i met it's just, i mean hanging out with paul rubens yeah what was he know, like did you it, it was amazing quiet? because he was he was very quiet he came through as a as an opening act like early early 80s like maybe eight eighty one maybe when we were called park place it mm-hmm. wasn't even funny bone then and we were just, you know, sitting around talking. He said, "So what's going on out here?" And I said, "Well, I play acoustic guitar and sing after you guys are finished." And he, I just thought he was he was great, you know, just just a new guy starting out, and he just did stand up. Never did Pee Wee. Uh-huh. Pee Wee didn't exist yet, I don't think. And he was just wow. starting him out, you know. And, and I'd go in and watch him, and then he'd come out and watch me, and it it's just isn't that bizarre? So cool. I remember Mac King, the 
Mac is one of my favorite. I've talked about him Mac. a few times on the podcast. He's a Ma- great guy. Yeah, Mac would come in and he'd say, "Bill, I don't have a car. Let's let's drive down to the grocery store and I'd get his boxes of cereal for him, you know, for his act." Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> Maybe a goldfish or something. To, I don't know. I still don't know where that goldfish lives for forty minutes before oh he pulls gosh. them out. And we just they're not like first they're like you know godly because you're like oh my gosh i'm sitting here talking to paul rubens and then after the third or fourth time they come back it's like hey paul let's go over here and let's do this and they're just people just like you and me but it's it's amazing to watch their rise right to see how they evolve and where they go and where they end up did you yeah i mean it's you know the fact it's fun that the fun part about being older is to be able to look back and see where somebody started and where they are now. Exactly, you know, it's incredible, and the and the journey and the path that they mm-hmm. take to get there. Like Ron White with the cowboy hat and and the whole his, yeah, his, his he, act was so different. He wouldn't now. be caught dead wearing a cowboy no, hat now. No, he's, and he's just so funny. It's just it, just to watch him. I mean, he doesn't. He sometimes he doesn't even say anything. You just look at his face, and he just got you roaring yeah. with laughter. That's how it was in the old funny bones. Do you remember, like, when Ronnie Carrington came through? Do you remember? <laughs> oh yes. I remember. I was emceeing, and he was in the middle spot. And he's like, "I got to favor somebody to headline. I got to headline these clubs. I'm headlining everywhere else, but the funny bone. These guys will not headline me." And then the next thing you know, he's like, you know, got his TV show going on. And right. Stuff. Now I was curious. Um, of the musical comics that would come through the Funny Bone, were there some? I mean, you mentioned John Joseph. Were there others that you like? Always kind of peeked in the door, see what they were up to. I kind of liked Rick Roberts. Oh, well, I thought Rick Roberts was hilarious. <laughs> There's a. I'm going to delete that. That's embarrassing. No, I loved no. all the stuff that you did. I loved it. It was. Well, it's a rental. I love all that. Oh, stuff. thanks. That's a, that's the good old memories right there. Well, those were good times. I was thinking more like uh, like the Haywood Banks and the Tim Cavanaugh. Oh, Haywood's, Haywood's just a genius. He's he's so. He, I don't know where he comes from. He's the stuff that he just pops into his head. It's just so common to him, mm-hmm. but it's so genius to me. I just kind of stand there and think, how in the world did he come up with this? And it's it's song after song after song like that, right? And they're all they all have a really strong hook in them. They do. He's he's one of those songwriters. I mean, I, I went to Nashville for, I think I was going back and forth to Nashville for about six or seven years trying to write stuff, and I would just watch these powerhouse writers, and I kept th- thinking to myself, what am I doing? These guys are sheer genius. The way they'd come up with this and that and the other, and and you know, I I just couldn't do it. Did you have, uh, like, what part about it was the hardest? Was it, was it telling the story in a short amount of time? Because, I mean, you're doing that when you're singing other people's mm-hmm. songs. Like, was it the hook? Was it the... Mine was mostly melody, trying not to make it sound like something of the thousands of songs that are, uh, you know, burned in my head. This might sound a little bit too much like that, or it sounds like that a little bit. And let me take away from that. So, I... Um, you know what? Today, you'd be in the right place because all the songs sound exactly the same. <laughs> Have you seen like that the YouTube video of it's like uh, whatever garage band or something, mm-hmm. but they put seven country songs yeah, on top of each other and they it's, just go it's down. Kind of disappointing. It's extremely disappointing. I used to make people people kind of angry when I'd go to Nashville because my opinion was in those days it was the early '90s through the mid '90s I was going down there. I would say to people that I think that countries should separate. I think that country should have traditional country and new country. Mm-hmm. Like Rascal Flats is new country. Right. And, uh, you know, George Strait is tradi- traditional country. And they would just look at me and, you know, no, 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 no. You don't want to talk like that. That's, I know. it. They didn't like that. And uh, it's almost now that the the real new country that sounds traditional is called Americana. Right. You know, exactly. guys like Jim Lauderdale and some <laughs> of those, you know, my favorites. But there is a... You know, I, I joke in my act. I'm like, how many people like country music? And I'm like, <laughs> I'm like, you don't like the same kind of country music I do, right? Because it's obvious that that you know you like Luke Bryan, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. the last Luke I followed was Skywalker. So we're not even on the same <laughs> we're not even on the same wavelength. My my favorite country stuff was like Jim Reeves. My mom would play Jim Reeves, and if you look back, really, that wasn't really country either. No, that like was a like a little novelty niche mm-hmm. part he was, of it. He was a crooner. He was like a Frank Sinatra of country, mm-hmm. and just listening to him, and that's how I learned to sing is like you know with my ear pressed up against the speaker of the hi-fi in the living room and just thinking man these guys are just the way they would 
the di- their diction of pronouncing mm-hmm. different words and their phrasing and Sinatra was big on that. Like every time I listen to him, I'm like, it's almost like a theatrical performance of a musical piece. Exactly. You know, I'm getting better. Yeah. Just the way that he would just emulate that. It was. Yeah. Fantastic, and the great singers always have that. And I don't even know if they realize they're doing it. Sometimes, like one of the one of the moments, where, I'm a big Johnny Cash fan too. Oh, me too. Yeah. And uh, when he sings, I'm going down, 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 but he's singing up, up, up. Right. Like, yeah, that's he's, brilliant. He's doing song, the right? opposite mm-hmm. of what he's singing. That's I, brilliant. I heard the first time that registered with me. Like I, I replayed it and replayed. It. I'm mm-hmm. Like that's just pure genius. Yeah, that's Harlan Howard, the big big Nashville writer. That guy was just. It's uh, uh, two of the biggest Nashville writers I ever met, uh, uh, Bob McDill, mm-hmm. and uh, just sitting around with him. I mean, he wrote "When You Say Nothing at All" with right. It just like wow. I mean, how it's such a it's a three chord song, and and he you know it's I'm trying to think of the other guy that wrote it with him, but he was a huge Nashville writer. But we used to sit in a Cracker Barrel together, right? Just, and what do you say to these people? I know. <laughs> Whatever you say, make it make it catchy because they're going to put it in a song. Like, I Don think people, Schlitz, that's his name. Oh, yeah, yeah. Don Schlitz. The two of them, that's the only song they've ever written together, together. Bob McDill and Don Schlitz. And it's When You Say Nothing at All. Really? That is <laughs> sheer genius. Maybe you should get together more often. If that's oh, the one man. thing you produce together. Every time that I would sit there with them, you know, I, I would play the Bluebird Cafe on, mm-hmm. a, on a Tuesday night or a Wednesday night. And the following morning, they're all hanging out at the, at the Cracker Barrel. Right, and I would go in and meet all these, you know, incredible songwriters, and they'd say, "Oh, you played last night. Uh, your name's I'd say, my name's Bill." And they'd say, "Hey, I was good, man. I liked it. I liked it." Yeah, and you're thinking my heart would just flutter. Yeah, yeah. They're, I mean, they seem so huge, and they, you know, they're incredibly accomplished. But they're again, they're just people that are doing the same thing you do. Exactly. They just a little bit more visibility, you know, yeah. a little bit more success on the Steve, songwriting front. Have you ever heard of Steve Seskin? He's a guy oh, yeah. who life's a dance. Yeah, I've done a show with him. Yeah, he's a fabulous songwriter, too. He's he's another one. He was like, Bill, just hang in there, buddy. Just keep keep doing it. Keep doing it. And I just couldn't. Mm-hmm. It just felt like it was time to give it up and just come home and keep keep performing like I was. Yeah, like you, you know, your groove is obvious. I mean, I've seen you for decades. Perf- the performance and the material mm. you select, I mean, it's, it's what you should be doing. Right. So it's, I'm almost glad, in a sense, that the songwriting thing didn't take you away. Me then, too. And you the may have never been where too. I, yeah. I bumped into you. Too. And the acting thing, too. Let me take, ask you about that a little bit. What was, because I've, I would love to act. I have no memory skills. Yeah. yeah. At all. Mm-hmm. I remember I, I did the hair when I was in college. Yeah. And they had to put me in, in scenes where if I messed up, it didn't affect the entire scene. Because I would not remember anything. I would literally get in the middle of probably watching. I would say the wrong thing, and the guy's like, "The scene's over now. You just killed the scene. Oh we got five more minutes." Oh. You know, so people are already jumping in trying to save me. What was it with you with, with acting? It well, was I, difficult. I, I did a little bit of high school plays. At, I went to South High School, graduated in '79, but I went right around that time was when Fort Hayes was created, Fort Hayes Career Center, and that was a like a performing. It was everything, Rick. It was it was incredible. And now they have a photography studio and everything there. But back in those days, it was um, it was theater, dance, uh, vocal music, instrumental music. Um, it was, I'm, I'm probably leaving something out, but uh, I went in and auditioned and uh, auditioned for Dr. Phil Wilson, who's just he's um, he's an amazing guy. He's right. still still, still there? in Columbus. Still amazing guy. He's retired now. Okay. Um, but I, I did see him. He came to one of my shows a couple weeks ago, and he looks great, sounds great. And he was a singer, originally a singer in the fifties. He had a song called "Wishing on the Rain," "Wishing on a Rainbow." I've heard that. And that uh, was him. That's, that's Bill Wilson. That's cool. And then he, and just like me, he's the opposite of me. He started out as a singer and ended up being an actor. And I'd started out as an actor and ended up being a singer. And he. I mean, he's always been my mentor. He's always been someone that I can bounce opinions off of. And I respect him so much because he taught me so much about memorization. And so when I studied theater there, I studied, you study lighting and sound and, you know, blocking for a play mm-hmm. and how to memorize song lyrics and how to memorize, you know, the script, that sort of thing. His little teachings, little uh, ways of helping you to rem- remember everything. That's what I. That's what was so great about him. Well, I mean, that's something else that 
I was going to ask you about when you when you sing and you're covering hundreds of songs mm-hmm. in your repertoire. Like, how do you not? I mean, everybody how do you always asks me that because I'll, I'll forget them in my own song and I've only got three. <laughs> 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 I mean, seriously, if, if if it goes three weeks before. Because I don't always play guitar in every show. Right. But I might have three weeks where I'm doing shows with no guitar, then I pull it back out. I'm like, I got to sit here. (laughs) Oh, that's hilarious. How do you tie it together? I don't know. I really don't know the answer to that. I think it's just because I love it so much. Like, you know, I I do a whole segment in my show of of one-hit wonders, and there are songs that were a huge hit for somebody, like a guy named Sammy Johns. Mm -hmm. And people will say... Who is Sammy Johns? And I say, well, he he wrote Chevy Van. It was a huge hit for him in 1976. And people say, I don't I don't think I know that song. And then when I start to play it, they'll go, Oh my god, I love that. I, song. I love that. <laughs> I haven't heard that song since. And that's that's the whole thing right there. Because that's how I met Leslie Gore. I was playing. Uh, my first agent in Columbus was John M. Moore. Do you remember John? I don't know him. He was in his 90s. Wow. And he was just in the Yellow Pages, and I was looking to get started. So I pulled out the old Yellow Pages, <laughs> and I'm flipping through, and it said entertainment section, and there was John M. Moore. And I literally called him and said, you know, my name's Bill. I play acoustic guitar. I specialize in older music. And he said, well, you know, we're not really looking for anybody right now. And I said, well, I, I'm just trying to get started in the business, and I don't know how to do it. Mm-hmm. I'm going to be honest with you. And he said, well, what do you play? And I said, I play stuff like Buddy Holly and Sam Cooke and Ricky Nelson. And and then I do a lot of 70s stuff, too, like Cat Stevens and you know James Taylor. And he mm-hmm. said, well, I'll tell you what, I'm not doing anything Saturday. Why don't you grab your guitar and pop over to the office? And he was on Broad Street in yeah. those days. And it, it was probably 1980, I think. I dressed up, went down to see him, and played him two or three songs. And he said, well, I'll tell you what, let's just do a standard contract. I'll have you for a year. Just sign here, and you'll make X amount of dollars, and I'll take 20%, and we'll see what we can do. And he was he was probably 90 that then. That's incredible. He was such a great guy. And, and then he was getting me into the – he knew how to find the right audience for me, an older crowd that would right. like the stuff that I play. So you had the connections, and then, and exactly. that's really what it takes. You know, the the skill and the talent is worth nothing if you don't have a connection to get you in front of. And and people hate to hear that when they first start. Like, mm-hmm. uh, I'm, I can do any gig, right? You, no, can't, you can't. You can't do any gig. You can't do a gig because you don't know anybody to call or nobody to make a, a phone call for right. you. And and that's organically can happen. But you know, sometimes you make your own circumstance, like you did. You went in there, you got nothing to lose. Mm-hmm. Yellow. Yellow pages, you call them right up. Right, and the more I played for John, the more he started figuring out the people that would be well for me. And uh-huh. he, he ended up sending me to uh, uh, New Jersey, and I played in, in New Jersey, and Leslie Gore was sitting in the audience watching me. And I didn't know that it was her. I knew who Leslie Gore was. Right. And, and for the people with, that don't know who she is. Yeah, she's saying, it's my party, and, and I'll cry yep. up. I want, she was a huge, she just passed away a couple of years ago, too. Yeah. And she was a fabulous entertainer. I just loved her. I, I loved everything she did. And she's saying, uh, Judy's turned to cry, and you don't own me, and all these huge hits. And I was with a comedian. I think it was Michael Finney. Yeah. Michael Finney and I were in this ballroom, and Michael would do, you know, half an hour and I would do like 10 or 15 minutes and then they'd charge a $7 cover and start it all around again. And she flagged me over. She said, I've been sitting here watching you and I'm really enjoying you. And she said, you're not playing any female 50s or 60s artists. And I said, well, it's tough when you're a guy. Yeah. And she asked me if I'd ever heard of Leslie Gore. And I said, I love Leslie Gore. And she said, can you name any of her songs? And I did. And boy, she just went crazy when I did. And that's she couldn't awesome. believe that I knew her music, and that's funny. She was playing to see if see if I you she knew. was testing me out. Did she want to get up on stage and sing with you or anything? No, she didn't want to perform. She just wanted to just talk to me about music because I love to ramble on. I love to say this next song was written by so and so, and it was redone in 1967. Right. Like the Four Tops. Four Tops did "Baby I Need Your Lovin'" in '64, and I love the Johnny Rivers version in 1967. And people just sit there and shake their head. <laughs> What what is he talking about? <laughs> well, you're uh, that brings me to something else I wanted to talk briefly about was uh, your love of history. Like you also have this thing for Civil War. Oh, I love it. I just love it. I mean, you've got 
different um, uniforms, right? And yeah, like, I, I got into that about probably about when I was about 10 or 11, I guess. Really? Yeah, so really my young. mom and dad, um, my mom was from York, Pennsylvania, which is right up the road from Gettysburg. Right. And in the summertime, I'd go out and spend uh, summers with my uncles out there, and they knew every blade of grass at Gettysburg, and they loved to talk about this happened here and this happened here, and here's the monument for that. And I just, it was kind of second nature to me. You soaked it up. I soaked it up and I loved it, but I never thought of, you know, dressing up in the uniform and all that. And it was probably, I, my wife, Cresha, is, is, a, is a history buff too. And we had been married for about two or three years and we were at different regalias and uh, reenactments. And a, a lot of people would ask us, you know, what do you guys know about this stuff? And we'd say, well, over here's this and over here's that. And, and next one thing led to another and people would say, you, sh you guys should teach this because you seem to know a lot about this. And it was stuff that, was old hat to me, uh -huh. but the average person didn't know. Yeah, they you know didn't, that they didn't yellow have your pen striping. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yellow pen striping on a uniform means cavalry. Most people may not know that kind of stuff. Right. So, Krisha and I started started that company, and we've been to uh, like seventeen states doing it. Rick, it's amazing. And then you get called to do something on TV. And yeah, we're going to work with the Discovery Channel. They're going to help. They're going to help us do an episode about uh, what we do. Is we set up an area where we're uh, sitting around and people just hundreds of people will go past us at a festival or a fair and rather than going out and reenacting we just stand there and people can come up and have their picture taken with us or ask us about stuff and we just have thousands of little props uh -huh. reenactment props where people will come up and say uh what's this and you know we'll explain it to them and Kind of like Jim Gaffigan. Yeah. What's this? <laughs> yeah. Well, this is a tostado. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I love when he does that bit about the Mexican food. Yeah, yeah. That's how I feel. And they're like, well, what's that do? And I say, well, this is a button cover or this is that. And and people really, really get into it or they'll just walk away and say, this is just weird. Yeah, they're like, this guy's got a lot going right, on. <laughs> exactly. That's why I like it. <laughs> yeah. So I teach them how to go through the nine steps of shooting a powder rifle. And it's, it's fun because... Um, People, people that are really into it go crazy over yeah. it. And it's, it's a nice escape from the music because I, I play, you know, six, seven nights a week in the, in the summer. Right. So it's, it's year-round. Uh, we've been to Des Moines. We've been to Maine. We've been to Memphis. And it's, it doesn't matter whether they're into the Confederate side or the Union side. Right. Because I had relatives that fought for both sides. And you know a little bit about it, yeah, all of it. Yeah, it's it's pretty much the same stuff. I mean, our relatives were killing each other wholesale. You know, yeah. it's, just, it's it's brutal. Yeah, and I love talking about it and showing them the swords that were used in different kinds and just everyday accoutrements too that were carried. People are interested in that. Like, like I have a little packet of powder when you get it wet. It's it's ink. Ah, and people are like That's, powdered ink. Right. It's so cool to think they would just add water to that, put a little river water in that, and it could. They, they could yeah, write a right. They're already dipping the quill in somewhere, exactly. weren't they? So I guess that's what it was. <laughs> that's what we do. And it's, it's stuff like everyday stuff like that that people are very interested in. That company is called For the Love of History. For the Love of History.com. It's nice because it's a great break from music. And right. I love music. But you know how it can get. It can get very monotonous. Yeah. Let's talk about that for a few minutes because, uh, you know, a lot of our listeners are either comedians, magicians, performers, speakers. And let's talk about just kind of the grind of performing. Yeah, it can be rough. Let's just talk about the the performance aspect of it. You sing for how many hours sometimes? On the average, I would say two to four hours a night, usually. And you don't take a lot of breaks. I really don't. And it's it's because I kind of get into my, a, a zone. Mm -hmm. And I never, I try not to do the same songs over and over, over and over again. Right. So you don't have a set list on a on I a I never do, stand. even when I play with my band. Is that, is that fun for your band? or They don't like it at all. <laughs> they don't like it at all. We were, we played at the Hollywood Casino uh, last year for Valentine's Day. And the Hollywood Casino called us and said, we need a song list. And I said, uh, it's in my head. Yeah. How'd they handle that? They didn't like that too well. Yeah. They said, so let me get this straight. You're going to play a 45-minute set, and it's just going to pop in your head? And I said, mm-hmm. Yeah. It's, I, I'm, I'm probably one of the only people that do that i'm sure but. yeah well i remember that from watching you like you it seemed that like one thing naturally flowed to the next and you didn't spend 
you know, some guys spent a lot of time switching the capo and stuff between songs. Mm-hmm. And whenever you did, you had the story to tell about the song right. coming up. So it was it was quick. And it gives the song life. I think it just it breathes life into it, and people will sit there and say, "Wow, I remember that." I think it also too it makes it a real experience. I mean, if you never talked to the audience and never did those in between things, mm-hmm. you just went up more like a jukebox. Then right. they could have had a jukebox there. <laughs> exactly. Right? Exactly. You don't want a jukebox taking right. your place. Mm-hmm. But it's those little things in between. What do you do when you've got, uh, you know, a cold or you're not feeling great? What oh, kind wow, of, it's rough. What kind of The tricks? only time, knock on wood, the only time I've ever lost my voice was New Year's Eve about four years ago. I, I got a heck of a cold. And for some reason, my voice just went completely out. Uh-huh. The place was very understanding. My, my guys filled in for me. Um, Dan Clark is my bass player. Uh, Denny Place is my drummer, and he sings as well. Dan sings as well, and Pete Carey is my electric guitar player. And he's they're, really good. By they're the way. phenomenal. Yeah. They're all phenomenal players, and they can all sing. So they pretty much pulled me through that night. But there are times when you just, you know, just get not feeling well, right? And it's, it's, I, you know, you've heard all the things, hot tea, mm-hmm. this and that and the other. What I basically do is I just don't speak. I just try to speak as much as I can and try to keep the lower songs early in the show and then the high, the higher, stronger pushing songs toward the end of the show because your voice will get stronger as you sing. Okay. That's That's what works for me. It doesn't always work for everybody, but that's my. No, that makes sense, though. Mm -hmm. I mean, I have a lot of jokes that are low. <laughs> and I'll start my show with those. Sure. I'll do Gordon Lightfoot because he's like the yeah. sundown. You know, <laughs> right. Do a little Johnny Cash early. And, <laughs> That's right. And uh, do some Barney Fife later. Right. You know, you can't, you right. can't walk right out there and, hi. Ah, you know, they're not exactly. ready for that. What about as far as, as uh, I mean, you've got a, not a ton of gear, but you've got gear. you got to get in and get out. Mm-hmm. What are some things that make that process easy for you? Cause, I've quit using power amps, too, because I've noticed that people... A lot of times they'll hire my band or or me, and they're sitting really far away from the stage because night after night they're hiring groups and bands that are just blowing the stage away. So over the last 10, 15 years, I've really downsized. And it's not such a bassy, Mm -hmm. thumping kind of sound system that I use. I use a couple of carbon speakers. And typically at the shows that I've been doing, it's really important to have a monitor. Yeah. I think it's really important, especially when you're a singer. You have to be able to hear yourself, and then you can keep the main system farther down for the audience, and so you're not just blowing the room away. I mean, depending on the scenario, you know, it could be a huge place where you need that volume. Right. No, I'm a big fan of a monitor, even for comedy. You exactly. Know? And a big venue, a theater, an outside deal of, mm-hmm. you know, when you're at a pavilion in, or one of these state fair buildings sure. or whatever. Mm-hmm. I mean, I have to have that or else it, or else you feel you have to scream. That's the whole thing. And that's how you end up losing your voice. So I always turn the monitor really high for myself. Mm-hmm. And I, that way you're not hugging the mic as well. And you stay back off the mic and give it a real natural sound. I like to put a lot of reverb in there and turn the reverb way down. Okay. That's interesting. That's what I do because it gives it that old fifties sound to it and when you're playing with the whole band they don't the audience doesn't really hear it now if you're standing there talking in it you're going to hear it really right. prominently sounds like you're in the garage yeah, exactly hey hey how you, how you doing, doing? <laughs> and it's not a delay it's just a reverb it okay, gets so. that old-fashioned it's like the like i said the old jim reeves and sam cook's songs you know that's they always have that real far away reverb sound to it and i love that but yeah. but then turn it way down yeah that's that's interesting i like that idea like the, at the end of the song when you end the song, you'll hear that, and people will say, "Wow," because it has that old feel to it. Yeah, and that's when people, they, it seems like you're pulling them back in time, and they're kind of feeling that studio sound, the old Burl Ives sound. Oh yeah, you know? yeah, yeah, yeah. It's nice and warm. Exactly. That's the whole idea. That's cool. And what about? Uh, I'm always interested in some travel tips because you know you hit, you do a lot of. You're fortunate where you have some local shows that are ongoing, you know, mm-hmm. but but you do a lot of weddings, you do a lot of stuff where you hit the road. What? Yeah, you know what I tell my band, most importantly? Black. Wear black. Wear a lot of black. So you get I always up pack here black there. because it, it looks dressy, even though you're not, you may not be dressed up. Uh, I always bring lots of t-shirts. Uh-huh. Um, and I'll have a black t-shirt on. I can keep changing the t-shirt, but I can keep wearing a different, the same black shirt even for a couple of shows because you're essentially not wearing that shirt if you got a clean t-shirt on underneath it. Right, right. So I tell my guys in my band, black shoes, black 
dress pants, black shirts, and you look like a million bucks. And the other thing we do is we wear black t-shirts and khakis, and then we'll wear like 50s-style shirts yeah, over, yeah. over our uh, t-shirts. So we're setting up in the t-shirts, and then we put the the like the shirts that um, Charlie Sheen wore on. Kind of like bowling shirts. Yeah, exactly. I don't know what else to call yeah, that. But. Yeah, I think they call them camp shirts. Uh-huh. And we, you look like a million bucks when you put that on. You look like you're ready for a show. And like, and and uh, just like Rob says, never wear shorts on stage. Never wear shorts on stage. <laughs> That's right. That's the last thing you want is Bill Foley in shorts out That's there. That's right. You don't want on. that. <laughs> You know, it's funny, you know, one guy in one of those shirts looks good, but when you get four or five in a, in a group yeah. like that, it does look really sharp. And what's neat is we're, we're never the same. We always wear different ones. I have probably 20 or 30 of them that I buy, and you look like you're all dressed up. Yeah. And, uh, I think they look great. They look they look classy, and, and and you can take it off when you're done, and then you can tear your tear your gear down with just a t-shirt and khakis on. And I like that idea, man. It saves you a step. It saves you a step, and... Um, I always pack light, you know, just a, a nice. I've always got a travel bag by the door, too. And yeah, I was going to ask you about that because, mm-hmm. you, you know, always. gigs pop up here and there. Because mm-hmm. you never know. I mean, it. I, I, the, there have been times I was in St. Louis one time and I had a guy call me uh, through an Internet service that I'm on. He said, you know, we, we're in Chicago and the gig is tomorrow. And my wife and I just looked at each other and said, good thing we packed. You know, yeah. we've got another... I've got another outfit. So you can take a shower. You can put on a clean T-shirt and a clean, you know, undies and clean, right. sh- clean jeans and wear the same shirt that you wore You're yesterday because it's, it's, it's not touching you. It's, yeah. it's You're changing underneath. Yeah, it's almost like a jacket at that yeah, point. My, yeah, my band, they just shake their heads at me. And oh, yeah. The other thing I always, I never eat at little uh, mom and pop places when I'm on the road, when I'm, when I'm working. You know, that's a good tip because, yeah. you know, as bland as some of the franchise food can be, <laughs> there's a system in place. Exactly. And they that's how they're able to scale and be all across the country. So yep. the chances of it being exactly. safe, I don't, you know. This. Yeah, I got botulism <laughs> one time on the road and it was from a little mom and pop place and it was just outside. It was at Cornell Uni- University. Is that right? Yeah. I mean, you would never yeah. imagine it there. And I was sick as a dog. And it, 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 I stick to Cracker Barrel. I stick to Bob Evans. Yeah. I don't like fast food, but I typically eat a lot of chicken sandwiches and that kind it's of stuff. It's a safe thing to do. It keeps yeah, your stomach just, calm and you're not. It's, it's safe. And it's just my band, they just shake their heads because they can't stand it. Now, when you're done with the gig, you know, yeah, you could probably crazy. cut loose and do something on the way home, maybe. But yeah. Well, I don't know I, how, many, how many times you, it's an after-dinner event, and they're like, come on over here oh, and eat this. And what so are you having? Many. We're having a taco bar. And it's uh, so okay. tempting. Yeah. I don't want two shows going on on stage. <laughs> you know? And they always want to feed me right before I go on. You know, I have know. this humongous meal, and I'm like, I found her diary underneath a tree. Yeah. It's not going to happen. It almost yeah. breaks their heart when they can't fit. <laughs> what I've told almost all my clients lately is uh, – They'll say, hey, you know, we're going to have you on at 9 o'clock and we'll have dinner at 7.30. And I would never eat dinner at 7.30 in my own house. No, me either. So, so I just tell them, you know, I'm an old farm kid. I eat breakfast like at 6, lunch at 11, and I'm done eating by 5 o'clock for the day. That's and, me too, Rick. And that's then they kind of back off. Yep, that's exactly it. It's it, That it really is a farm schedule, but it works perfect for entertainers like yeah, us. You, yeah, you don't want to be eating right before you hit the stage. Yep, I know. Um, for those of you that aren't in the Columbus area, you may not have heard about Bill's encounter. Was it middle of February? It was February the 11th. Okay, yeah. so a little bit before Valentine's Day. And Bill, how, how many years had you played or how many dates at that venue before? Yeah, it's called the Nazareth Deli. I'd been there probably about seven years. Wow. Uh, he had a, Hanny had a location on 161 in Cleveland for a few years, and I was there about four years, I think. And then he moved to the new location on North Hamilton Road, and I was there about three years. Was it like an every Tuesday or an every Wednesday? Every Thursday night. Every Thursday night yeah. for seven-something for, years. Yeah, forever. And Great you're playing place. at this restaurant in Delhi. Mm-hmm. And then this guy comes in mm-hmm. completely. Yeah. He, I guess he had been in a couple times earlier that night. It was a really creepy guy. Uh, I was Everything about that night was just completely weird. Um, my wife wasn't with me. She's always with me, Rick. And that particular uh, night, she wasn't. Yeah, they, she wasn't there that night. Uh, there was a lot of regular customers that come in to see me. None of them were there. It just had a different feel about it. And I was on the phone with Cresha, with my wife about it. This guy was kind of weird. He was coming in, going up to the front counter and 
talking to the staff, and then he would leave. And then he came back, and then he would leave, and he came back, and he would leave, and then he came in with a machete and a knife and started attacking the customers. It's completely it, out of the blue. like Unbelievable. I was in the back booth, uh, sitting all by myself. I had just finished dinner. So I had, everything was taken away. My food was taken away, my utensils and everything. He attacked the Russells. They were sitting right by the front door. And I thought it was a nightstick because he was just beating them in the head with it, and they were using their hands for protection. And it was utter chaos. The place just erupted in screams and yelling and running, and next thing I know, he was on top of me. Just like that? Yeah, so he was pummeting my head, um, and, uh, you know, it, it was just chaos. So I jumped up really fast, and I think, Getting the anger in me is what saved me. Mm -hmm. So I headbutted him and we wrestled across the table right there in front of me. We went into the booth on the other side and knocked all my gear over and everything. It was it was a horrible thing. And I fought with him, you know, probably a, a minute, maybe. And he stabbed me in the side, uh, punctured my lung and my liver, and I thought I was going to die. And that must have seemed like a minute. Must have seemed like yeah, hours. The FBI said it was just a miracle. The whole thing was just a miracle that I'm alive. And they came to, uh, I went back in the back office for a while, and he went out the front door. They got his license plate, and un unfortunately, the police had to kill him. You know, like an hour later, they killed him. So while I was in surgery getting repaired, they actually killed him. They took him out. It was terrible. Did, was he resisting arrest at that point? Or? I, think he, I think he attacked the police just wow. like he attacked all of us. And it's just, the whole thing is just nightmarish. I mean, I've been in the business for 35 years, and I've never even so much as seen the bar fight. Right. Isn't that crazy? You know, it's, just, it's just crazy how people, I don't know what his motivation was. They the still FBI know, huh? is still under, under investigation about it. They said they're going to get us together and figure out you know, exactly what his motivation was. But it's just pure evil and that he would do that with kids and people and families in there and I'm so glad I fought him, because I think that had I went underneath the table, he would have just killed me you if I would have so? just resisted and ducked under there. But I jumped back at him, and I think it really threw him off. I bet it surprised him, like you know. Yeah, but you can't take fists to a knife fight. No, and <laughs> and he took the machete to your hand he as did, well as. And your... I'm going through therapy, and my hand feels better every day. Uh, Doctor Okada was the surgeon that saved the tendons in my hand, and I'm, I'm finger picking again. I was going to say uh, it's a miracle. Your progress through physical therapy is pretty amazing. It and, is amazing. I, you... I feel like a million dollars getting off all that medication was really amazing too. I, yeah, I know the medication saved me. Yeah, I mean, but it's it's. That, that's a slippery slope, and I'm it glad, I'm glad that really you're off is. of it and you're able to function without it because uh, people with much lesser instances get, yeah. in, get into that and they can't get out of it. But laying in that hospital bed for you know, 15 days like I was, flat on my back, you got a lot of time to yeah. think about stuff. I was basically going over my song list and <laughs> just trying <laughs> thinking, to get some normalcy. I can't wait to complain about being out in the hot sun playing again. Yeah. You know, it's just. I'll never complain about anything again. It's, yeah, it, it's a miracle. It truly is. It really is. And what I've loved about it is, uh, you know, it's almost like an early retirement party <laughs> because everybody who's ever seen your show stepped up. They they have as soon it's, as you were able to to get out and uh, benefit shows and just mm -hmm. shows of support and fundraising and and uh, you're getting ready to do one for the other couple that was injured. In yeah, the, the Russells are, are uh, they, they've got a lot of medical bills just like I do. I mean, I'm facing over $250,000. I was going to say, it's got to be massive. And uh, Bonnie Ryan Stern started my GoFundMe page, and I think the Russells have a GoFundMe page as well, but we're going to do a, a benefit comedy and music show for them this Saturday, uh, April 23rd in Johnstown, Ohio, which is where they're from. Right. So it's, I can finally... You know, quit sitting there and watching everybody. I can get up and try to give back. Be a part bit. of it. Well, even the show we did at the Funny Bone, uh, oh, and amazing. I know it was a tough day for you physically and everything, mm -hmm. but I think just everybody seeing you get there and play guitar. I mean, that was just like everybody had their cell phone out taking pictures. <laughs> yeah, and like, it was. It's like he's going to be okay. He, he <laughs> even right now, and it wasn't. Was it six weeks or so after the? Yeah, I think it was. Well, yeah, maybe, it maybe, was, maybe, yeah. maybe two months, but it wasn't that long after. And. Mm -hmm. 
there was just like a collective sigh of relief from everybody. Like, okay, I think he's going to be all right. You yeah, know, that's and the doctors were so matter of fact. I'm, I'm going to Grant Hospital this Friday to meet all the people that were involved in saving my life. So Dr. Strauss was the head surgeon that you know fixed my lung and uh, fixed my liver and all that in the um, in the operating room. Hundreds of nurses and, mm-hmm. and staff and respiratory therapists and all of them. So they sent out an email, and anybody that wants to come that was involved in taking care of me in any way can come Friday morning. It's private, you know, but it's 7.30 in the morning, and then I get to meet them all and thank them. That's pretty cool. Eye to eye, you know, face to face. And then they want me to play a couple of songs for them. Isn't that great? It's just it's the outpouring of love is just unbelievable. And well, I think, I've heard from everybody. It's just, that's been your kind of phrase is love conquers all. Right? It really does. It really does. Because I mean, this guy was, was evil. There's no two ways about it. I mean, how did he look me in the eye and attack me like that? Right. But love's going to win in the end. Love always wins. And that's, I just had to pull myself up and it's, it's like post-traumatic stress disorder. You have to talk it out. And music is, is the, therapy. Yeah, you know, the ultimate I'm playing therapy. guitar, and I'm playing two and three nights a, a week again, and I'll be back to my summer schedule again. It's it's God blessing me every day. It's amazing. It's in a million ways. It's amazing. Exactly. Your wife was really good at posting stuff early on. Yeah, like, she was. You know, Bill's in the hospital. He's going to be okay, but we've got a long road and all these things. And I just told my wife that as soon as they put it, I knew they're going to do a show with the Funny Bone. Mm-hmm. I said, I don't, I don't care if I've got something scheduled. I'm going to cancel sure, it. I, I said, appreciate it, Rick. I couldn't wait to get up there and see you. It, it was, was it was amazing to see everybody, and because I mean, Funny Bone was part of my life for over twenty two years. I think I played. It's a long time. It was, and, and I played at the Continent forever, and I, I couldn't make it work at Easton. It just it it just kind of ran its course, and that's something you, you can't take personally in this business. Well, let, let me. I want you to share this with everybody, though. Um, so you're a big James Taylor fan. Oh, a big JT fan. In yeah. fact, uh, I think if you ask any Bill Foley fan, like, who's Bill Foley's favorite? They, they, James Taylor <laughs> comes so fast out of their mouth. And somebody connected you with James Taylor. Yeah, John Matthew reached out to him and sent him an email, and, and his people got a hold of me and said, well, pick a show, Bill, because JT wants to see you. And I was like, are you kidding and me? And you'd open for him. Yeah, I've opened for him probably about, I would say, Four or five times, uh-huh. and every time I just put my foot in my mouth. I mean, whenever you meet somebody famous, especially me, I just get so starstruck because right. I just I just love them so much. So the first time I met James Taylor at the Polaris Amphitheater, I was like, "Don't do it, <laughs> don't do it." And I'm like, "Oh," and he he you know waved waved me over and he said, "So you're the opener?" And I said, "Yeah." And he said, "Oh, it's nice to meet you. I'm JT." And I was like, "What do you say to JT?" Right. I asked him what kind of strings he used right yeah. off the bat. Yeah. It was the dumbest thing I ever did in my life. Well, it's, it's natural, though. Man. It is. I just... I, That's funny. I was so nervous, you know, just, just standing there in his presence and thinking, gosh, the, the thousands and thousands of songs that he's written and just the, the presence that he has. Yeah. And uh, I, uh, it's just overwhelming to stand there and talk to him. You know? I mean, you're attending the show, but you get to hang out with him beforehand or have yeah, dinner. Yeah, we're going to go backstage and that's cool. see him a little bit. And it's uh, another one my friends reached out to, John Oates of Hall & Oates, uh-huh. too, because I, I opened for Hall & Oates several times and got to know them really well. And he'd been asking how I was doing and Larry the Cable Guy. and yeah. a, lot, a lot of them are just stunned by what happened. I mean, we're still... It, it, stunned by what happened it's it's just it's frightening yeah it, it's, it's totally frightening and i think every performer listening is thinking well that, that could happen to me exactly i've never thought about it before but that could totally happen yeah, at any a point. lot of other musicians have told me that too they said you know it could be any one of us that that, that happened to you're just and i hadn't even started playing that yet i was gonna say it sounded like you just had your dinner and you were getting ready to kind of i had dinner i typically go in places like that early and just hang out with the staff and uh-huh. talk to the owner and shoot the breeze we talk about guitars. We talk about how their jobs are doing. And there's a lot of the employees at Nazareth that I, I love going in early and just, you know, hanging out with them. And they bring me dinner and I sit there and have dinner and yeah. get ready, tune up and play. It was just a normal Thursday night until he came in and changed everything. But I went back there and played. I had to do it. Right. And I'm back there That's every your, Thursday back night. Back on your regular schedule. And now. it is, it's tough. I have to tell you, it, it's hard on me, but I have to do it. If if not just for me, for everybody, right? We we cannot live in fear. We can't, you know, 
huddle up in the fetal position and suck your thumb and be, you, you have to move on. Right. And I'm going to be stronger than him. Unfortunately, he's gone. And that was not my choice. No, and I thought that was interesting too that, you know, when I talked to you at the benefit, that it bothered you that they, they shot him. It did. I could have played his wedding reception, Rick. If I he mean, got things turned around. I like, could have known him. Uh, I don't know what his issues were. It breaks my heart that someone would lose their life like that. It just, it's it's terrifying and it's sad and it's heartbreaking mm-hmm. to think that a 30-year-old man is really that lost. Couldn't somebody reach out to him? And I, I've heard people saying he was supposed to get be, be getting married soon. Huh. Why would he throw his entire life away like that? I, that's the stuff that hurts me. That's what what breaks my heart. What makes me stay awake at the hospital and oh, I cried a billion tears in there. Yeah, but I'm an Irishman. I cry. Of course you do, <laughs> and you know, and that's good. You got You got If you hold that stuff in, it'll oh, eat it's you great up. therapy. It it's great therapy. And the doctors would come in and talk to me about it, and they'd say, "How you feeling?" And they they were more than doctors and nurses. They they were friends. They'd come in and say, "Man, you've been through the ropes." Right. You're a miracle walking. And I'd say, yeah, I really am. I mean, almost 400 stitches in me, you know, my head, staples and, and stitches in my head and my chest, my arm and my hand, and I'm alive. Yeah, I mean, God, God has jumped right in and I, I feel like I had a, a billion guardian angels yeah. watching over me. And it's, it's just, it's... <laughs> It, there's nothing to say. You just kind of nod your head and say, "Wow, thanks for the second chance." Yeah, I mean, every day is like every day. Thanks. Yeah, it's yeah. pretty great. Well, that's part another reason I wanted to interview you. Just, after that, I realized we're buddies, but we didn't have we have our, you were always doing a gig when I was doing a gig. We didn't have a lot of time to hang out. Yeah, a lot of us are like that in the entertainment business, though. Yeah. And it's nothing personal. We love each other. We see each other on Facebook and stuff like that. But yeah. once in a while, for lucky, we get to run into each other. Yeah. It's pretty cool. Well, it's been cool today, buddy. And that's my pleasure. If you got time? Let's go grab a little lunch. Awesome. That'd be great. Thanks, Bill. So there you go. That's my friend Bill Foley. Again, I am just totally happy and lucky that I had a chance to sit down with him and that he is on the mend. It's incredible to watch how God is healing him, not only physically, but with all the support that he's had around him. And again, you can check out his GoFundMe campaign. That's on my show notes at schooloflast.com if you want to help him out. Or if you just want to send a message of encouragement to Bill, I've included some links to some of his social media and his website so you can get in contact with him that way. And lastly, we're about to close in on 100 episodes of the School of Last podcast. The question is, do we do more or do we leave it at 100 episodes? And I'm going to leave that decision up to you guys, the listeners. After all, you're the ones who download it and uh, I get the feedback from you and it seems like it's making an impact. So here's what I have done. I've set up a Patreon page for the School of Laughs. And what is Patreon? If you haven't heard of that before, Patreon is a lot like Kickstarter in the sense that you can contribute financially to help a project grow. But unlike Kickstarter, it's not a one-time thing. It'd be a revolving monthly uh, membership donation, if you want to think about it that way. So for different price points, you can support the podcast, a dollar, three dollars, five, seven, nine, whatever you think uh, the value is to you each month, that would be your pledge, and it would just be automatically billed to your credit or debit card, however they have it set up on there. But this would be a way for you to contribute above and beyond just listening, and I would give you guys some rewards for doing that. I've set up what I call different reward levels, and it's called Laugh Partner Rewards. Kind of like Life Partner, but uh, we're just going to laugh together. We're not going to move in or do anything else. So here's what a Laugh Partner Reward system kind of looks like. If you were to give a dollar per month to support the podcast, you'd have access to a private news feed, kind of like a Facebook feed, but only those people that are supporting the podcast have access to it. And in that form, you could ask me questions, and I I'll deliver you guys some extra things that I will not give to everybody who's just hitting up School of Laughs on the website. If you had $3 a month to contribute to the School of Laughs podcast, I will include your fix jokes. Those will not be available to anybody that's not supporting the podcast. And I'll give you a shout out and a mention on the website as well as the podcast as someone that's supporting the show. If you were able to donate $5 per month, you would get access to the news feed. I would do the fix jokes for you, give you shout outs, and you'd have access to many bonus podcasts that I've been recording with my guests. You know, anywhere from three to five minute bonus podcasts where they give you their biggest and best tips on performing, writing, or how to save money as they travel. 
At $7, you get invited to hang out with me on a Google Hangout, and other listeners will be in there. And we'll kind of get to know each other. Or we'll get to swap some ideas around. And also in there, you can definitely pick my brain and ask me some questions. We'll be doing that on a monthly basis. And also at the $7 level, you'll be invited to join Club 52. Now, I haven't talked about that on the podcast yet. Club 52 will be a 52-week comedy challenge. It'll be through email, and I'll give you a challenge each week to help take your comedy career to a new level. So whether you're getting in at the Patreon support right now or three months down the line, whenever you hop in, it automatically starts a 52-week email chain of challenges to help you get bigger and better. And each of those emails will have an example and what I think you can achieve on your own. And at the end of that year, I definitely think you should see a big difference in your comedy. And again, that's just the people that are supporting the podcast at $7 per month. Lastly, if you're able to come up with $10 or more per month, I would give you everything you've heard in those previous reward levels, plus feedback and tips after watching a video set of you doing your stand-up on YouTube or Vimeo or however you want to get it to me. Or if you didn't want that, I could give you a private website analysis and break down what I think your website could be doing better to help you get more bookings. So all of that is available at patreon.com forward slash school of laughs, or you can click the link in the show notes and go over there and check that out. Anyhow, that's what it's all about. Patreon.com forward slash school of laughs. Let me know what you think. And if you can support it, go ahead in there and, and click a few buttons and get that rolling. And I'll be in touch with you guys next week. Thanks again for listening. for listening to the School of Laughs podcast. If you'd like to hear more School of Laughs podcasts, you can find them on iTunes and Stitcher.com. And don't forget to subscribe and leave a review. For information on upcoming live and online classes, visit SchoolofLaughs.com. Until next time, stay tuned, stay focused, and stay money.